Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to consider making a donation to our church. You may not know this, but our church isn't big, and at the same time, our impact is big. One example of this is our sermon audio, like you are listening to now. It will be listened to over 50,000 times this year and all over the world. I've recently had the opportunity to help someone get in a support group for their eating disorder and another person take steps to making amends with their in-laws. Both of these things happened because people heard our sermons online and reached out. Even more recently, I saw that someone in Saudi Arabia, a place where church is illegal, had listened to a sermon I preached on the worthiness of Jesus. I love that. All of this takes money to accomplish. I hope you're impacted by our sermons too. If you are, please consider making a donation to our end of the year fundraiser. You can do this by going to creekside.me slash donate and selecting the Moving the Mission Fund. Again, that's creekside.me slash donate. Any amount you give us helps move the mission forward. If it's $1 or $1,000, we will appreciate your help. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. I hope that it'll help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. One of the key words uh, for this morning is repentance, and this is one of those Christian words that gets said a lot, and, and I think a lot of people don't actually even know what they mean when they say it. Like, they'll say repentance, but it, it just lacks any depth in, in understanding and, um, and meaning. And, and so let me just give you the, the big idea of repentance biblically. It means to go the other direction. I think a lot of times, if you've been to one of our Ash Wednesday services, we talk about this. A lot of times, we, we think that repentance is feeling bad about something. Just, I feel bad that I did that thing. But uh, repentance is a word that means to go the other direction. Biblically speaking, it, it means to leave sin behind and, and to go in the direction of God. To stop living for yourself or idols or whatever and to turn towards God. And then, you know, after you've done that, uh, we have moments, right, where we drift away from doing what Jesus would want us to do. And, and so the Christian life is in some ways uh, a life of repentance that we're constantly feeling you know, that drift, and we're trying to get back. We drift, and we try to get back. Uh, you may know the hymn that says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, and that is us constantly, you know, wandering around and having to then, as Christians, repent. And as we continue to look at the book of Revelation what we see in this passage, and man, this is one of those where you you gotta you gotta look a little deeper because on first glance, this one this you wouldn't see it, I don't think. But but what we see here in this passage is really a call to repentance. Now, primarily, that call to repentance is for those who are outside of the Christian faith. Uh, more specifically, even those who oppose God and persecute His people. You've heard me say that a lot if you've been here. Through this series, but but it's a passage that I hope for those of us who are Christians and those of us who aren't Christians will will remind us, call us, tell us that we need to think about repenting. And some people, you know, after we've thought about it, we just need to do it. We need to repent. Now, more specifically, we're in this section about trumpets, and uh, I'll remind you or tell you for the first time that. The trumpets are blown, and then we see this punishment from God. 
But in this, we see kind of two things happening. The trumpets are blown in order that there can be celebration biblically. And the celebration here is, is not that people are dying and things are bad. The celebration is that Christians are going to be vindicated. They're going to have justice because they are being hurt and persecuted and killed for their faith. And so it's celebration knowing that God is going to Put an end to that. On the other side of that, trumpets serve as a warning biblically. It's a battle cry for the Israelites. You can read about that in the Old Testament. But it's a warning that we are coming, that we are going to attack. And in this passage, in our passage, it's a warning from God in a lot of ways just calling people to repentance. My professor who taught me most of what I know about the book of Revelation, Dr. Kuykendall, says the series, talking about the trumpets, points to the terrible reality of God's judgment on the world. Now, the length of the trumpets and their explanations has increased. First four, really fast. Second two, really long. And in some ways, that's meant to show us that they are more severe. And so the trumpets blast, and again, it's meant to point to celebration that we who are Christians who struggle and suffer, there will be an end to all of that. But also, if you're outside that, if you're not a Christian, you should be warned. It's encouraging to Christians, and I would even say that it's ultimately fear-inducing for those who don't serve God, specifically people who oppose him and hurt his people. Now, before we look at the verses, I want to do something a little bit different today. Uh, and, and this is that I want to give you the broad ideas about the passage before I read the passage. If you know my preaching, and most of you do here, uh, some of you online might not, but as we've moved through this, I'd like to read the verse and then explain the verse. But here I think it's most appropriate just to tell you kind of the broad idea of how people understand the second half of Revelation chapter 9, and then I will read it to you. And so, here we go. Preterists, they believe that the book of Revelation is about things that happened in the first century. They think this refers to the Roman armies who are... Uh, tracking apostate Israel in 70 AD. So it's Rome's attack on the Israelite people. Historicists, they see, a, now this is the group that thinks it's a timeline. The book of Revelation is a timeline through human history, or through Christian history, I should say. They see a jump of 700 years between the fifth and sixth trumpets, and they connect it to the fall of the Roman Empire when the capital city is attacked. Futurists see this as referencing armies from the east, who want to attack the Palestinian area around the time of Jesus' return. And if that's before or after, that's different for different futurists, but around the time of Jesus' return. Some see this very literally and point to specific armies. I'll come back to that. Others see it more broadly. And then interestingly, idealists, who actually don't think usually that this book is about any point in history specifically at all, they would say this is about lessons and theology and standing firm in your faith. It's about what I've been saying through the book, that it's about serving Jesus even when it's hard, even when there's rejections of truth in the church and persecution on the outside. They see this as Rome's attack on Israel too in the first century. But more importantly, they point to the significance of God allowing judgment to take place on sinful people who oppose him and persecute his church throughout history. Jim McGuigan, who I've quoted a lot also, I think he, did a, he does a great job of, of helping people understand the book of Revelation. He says, moral and spiritual blindness tear down a nation and wars exhaust her all together. I'm going to read that again because 
frankly, as I read that quote, and I know that this passage is about war, and I know that the last passage was about spiritual blindness in a nation, I, it makes me a bit worried about the future of our country and what a single war might do to us. He said, moral and spiritual blindness tear down a nation and wars exhaust her altogether. Listen to Revelation 9, 13 through 16 now. With that in mind, you kind of have the big ideas, and here's what it says. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who have been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mountain troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard the number. Quick note on horns, it's meant to represent the strongest part of something. And so here in some ways we have a picture of God's strength in this moment. I would point out the fact again that a big theme in the book of Revelation is that God is in control. And while we don't know how that works because we don't believe every war is like ordained by God for our punishment. Some wars happen. None of it is without his overarching control. God is totally in control. He's totally sovereign. If something happens, God has allowed for it to happen. But here we see God acting more um, specifically and saying, look, it's time for this thing to take place. Now, what's interesting, I read about the, the groups, right? And all of these groups, all these people who study the book of Revelation, they all see it, interestingly, as an army coming from the east. Now, who that army is and where that army attacks, that's up for debate. Like Rome or the Ottoman Empire or modern-day China, people debate those things. But everybody sees this as representing an army or armies coming from the east to attack. God can will, does, use the attack of enemies to punish people that oppose him and persecute his people. That's really clear here. Now, when I say that on the other side, I'll say it again. This does not mean that God is an active, you know, pusher of every war that, that we see. And where we can get into the dangerous territory is saying like, I mean, we got it going on right now. It'd be, I think, a, a bad thing to say, to say, look, Russia attacked Ukraine. Ukraine must be some evil nation. They must be doing something totally sinful. That is not what we should understand from this passage. But we, at the same time, as we shouldn't look at every individual war and go, how bad is that nation? You know, God is attacking them through other armies. We should recognize that God can and will and does use that form of punishment. And this is going to be a theme as I move throughout this, this passage of Scripture that we're looking at because, because we can't be too detailed, right, and say every time, I've said this before, every time something bad happens to somebody, this is what Job's friends do, there must be something wrong with them. Matt talked about that just recently, and it's exactly what Job, uh, it, the story of Job demonstrates. It, it has these terrible things happen in his life, and Satan causes them, and his friends show up, and they say, they say like, you must be doing something wrong. Something about your life must not be in line with God's will. And he's like, I'm trying to live for God. What are you talking about? And so we can't read into every war or bad thing that happens to a person that they have some problem in their lives. Christians have been very guilty of that. They see a natural disaster. They see a war. They see a personal tragedy. And they say, what's wrong with you? And that is not what we should understand here. But we should, at the same time, catch the warning that God does will, can use the attack 
of enemies to punish people who oppose him and persecute his people. And so as I mentioned that, a couple of things here. God is using people that oppose him and persecute his people to punish. And part of the reason, notice this, part of the reason that God gives us this is to encourage people who are being hurt for their faith. You have to remember that. And so this is not in a vacuum. If you were to go back to Revelation 8, 3 through 5, people who demonstrate martyrs probably who have been killed for their faith, they're going, God, do you even care? Like, can I get some justice? How much longer are you going to let people hurt your people? What are you doing up there? And God's like, be patient, right? And all of this is part of the answer to that prayer request. God is not going to let evil go unpunished forever. He is not let it, going to let his people be hurt and killed for their faith forever. At some point, he's going to stop that. The second thing you need to hear is that within this, there is this call to repentance. God isn't just punishing people here. He is punishing people, but he isn't just punishing people here. He is punishing people and calling people to repentance. The trumpets demonstrate that. I've already said that. Just the nature of a trumpet, right? We've seen the seals. Seals are small. They don't make noise. There's not a lot of warning in seals. But in trumpets, there are. Somebody blasts a trumpet, and what do you do? You turn, and you pay attention to it. If a guy was up there on stage right now, and he blew a trumpet, none of you would be looking at me anymore. Where would you be looking? You'd be looking at the trumpet, And I think this imagery is here in part to say this is part of God saying, look, I do punish this way. I will punish this way. So turn to me. But there's some details that further this truth, that deepen this truth, that this isn't just about punishment. It's about punishment and a call to repentance. And the first detail is simply this. Revelation is an apocalyptic book. And apocalyptic literature uses numbers in a symbolic way. It is one of its characteristics. Um, I'm trying to stay out of my personal views here, but I will say, and I'm going to say a couple things, that when people use the numbers in the book of Revelation to try to demonstrate a perfect timeline of how everything is going to go down, they're missing, <laughs> they are missing that this is an apocalyptic book, and in apocalyptic literature, numbers are used symbolically and i think they do it to the detriment of the actual point of the usage of numbers within the book and so for example a third of mankind what does that mean well some people would say it's very literal i would say that it's meant to say it's a very large and scary punishment a third of mankind being killed i mean can you imagine it's meant to strike fear into our hearts but also It's meant to say that it's not total and final punishment. It isn't 100% of the people. And so the two-thirds, and again, symbolically two-thirds, the majority, if you will, of people still at this point have the opportunity and ability to repent of the things that they are doing and to turn to God. There's mercy in that. The punishment is crazy, even if you understand it literally or figuratively. It's crazy. It's big, right? But it is also limited, and it serves as an opportunity for those who have not embraced Jesus as their Savior to turn to him, to repent and turn to him. 
you should be scared of the punishment God can levy upon earth, and this passage demonstrates that. I would be lying to you in the middle of a sermon if I glossed right over that and pretended that this punishment and this description is not meant to scare you in some ways. But it's so easy, I think, to grasp the fear part and to miss the mercy that is, I think, tied up in all of it that calls us to repent. There's this other number. Twice 10,000 times 10,000 is how it is literally written. Uh, For those of you bad at math, that's 2 million people. It can also be myriads of myriads, and this is meant to express a huge number. Some see it as literal, and some even go as far as to point out that China and its allies, all the way back to like 1961, I read, would actually be able to to put together an army of this size. I think that that is not a good way to understand this, to just point to China. I think that when we get that specific about the book of Revelation, we, we miss. Um, but that still is a scary illustration, right? That like a group of people that really don't like us here in America, um, they could put together a two million person army. And I don't think that this is, you know, like, hey, China is coming, and I don't think that's the intent of this passage to get that specific. But I do think that the illustration is very scary, and it's meant to strike fear into our hearts so that we will be led to repentance. And that carries on. Revelation 9, 17 through 19. The horses and riders I saw in my vision, this is John talking, look like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came, listen to these three words, I think they're so important, fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. What the people and the horses and the riders are, uh, you could guess is up for some debate, uh, and the debate falls along the lines of how you interpret the book of Revelation in the first place, preterist, historicist, idealist, and futurist. Uh, and so, uh, again, some see it as Rome, some see it as the Ottoman Empire, and some people see it as modern-day China. Now, Dr. Kuykendall says this, they are not human but demonic, and their job is to carry out the commission of the four angels from the Euphrates to kill a third of mankind, whether you agree with him or not. This is meant to demonstrate a very large and scary punishment. And where you see that most specifically, I think, is those three words, fire, smoke, and sulfur. These are meant to represent, I think, three different distinct plagues that are going to come upon people and what's so important about them is that if you keep reading through the book of Revelation, and by the way, this is one of the reasons that it's important sometimes to read through books of the Bible quickly. Sometimes it's really good to read a few verses, reflect on them, try to understand them, and I do that every week with you, right? I stand up here and I preach a handful of verses, but sometimes in your own personal devotion, it's really good to read through a Bible, or your, uh, a Bible book quickly because you start to see things that connect. They are letters, and so, so if you keep moving through the book of Revelation, fire, smoke, and sulfur keep showing up. And from this point forward, in the book of Revelation, 
they are connected to eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Revelation 14, it's not like one time, by the way. Revelation 14, 10, 11, 18, 9, and 18, 19, 3, and 20, 20, 10, 21, 8. You will see one of those elements or more in every uh, one of those passages, and they're always connected to eternal punishment. Sometimes eternal punishment of people who have opposed God and persecuted people. Sometimes uh, it's, it's Satan, uh, and so we s- but it's always eternal punishment. Let me give you an example. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery, fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so what do we, what do we take from this? I think what we're to take is that God, in the sending of an army or armies, depending on how you understand it, is punishing people in a way, a limited way, that shows a small picture of what hell will be like. God is in some ways in this passage unleashing hell upon those who persecute him, persecute his people and oppose him. He's unleashing hell upon them. Now, not all hell, because again, this is not final, right? It's a third of mankind. This isn't final. It's not finished. It's not the full weight of hellish punishment, but it is hellish in nature. It is uh, scary and awful and in line with what people will experience in a magnified way for eternity if they don't repent. And in that, in these three elements that we see here, I think that we get this very clear picture of of God calling people to repent and turn to him so that they don't have to experience the finality of hell for eternity. You see, we want to look at this as, as mean and awful. Some people do. God, how could God possibly punish? How could God possibly punish? Well, he can. (laughs) He's God. He can do what he wants. But even in the midst of this punishment, that seems so un-Christmas-like to preach about, we see, I think, such incredible mercy. We all have turned against God. Each Each of us has gone our own way. We've rejected God. We've made ourselves enemies of God. God could have said, hell. But even in this punishment that's being levied upon people you know, who oppose him and persecute his people, evil, vile people, we see him give them a picture of hell. We see him give them an experience that is hell-ish. But at the same time, it's a call to repentance. He doesn't just zap them and send them to hell. He allows for them, a majority of them at least, to have the opportunity still to turn to the trumpet blast and to give their lives to him. It's a hell-ish experience, but it's not hell. And in that there is, whether we see it that way on first glance or not, mercy and an opportunity for salvation to be saved from an eternal experience of hell. And then we read in verses 20 and 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still 
did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Hmm. Again, how you read this is dependent upon your overarching view of the book of Revelation. But I love what Jim McGuigan again says. Twice in these two verses we are told they repented not. The clear implication of these verses is that the trumpets were intended to bring them to their senses and to repentance. But despite what happened to their colleagues, they refused to quit. And in this, I think, we see the point of it all. Here is a punishment of epic proportions, a punishment that is done through the hands of enemy armies. And the punishment, while it is meant to bring justice to those who already have repented and become Christians, is also meant to be done in such a way that other people are warned and called into a relationship with God as they leave sin behind and accept Jesus as their Savior. God is blasting the trumpet through this punishment as a call to repentance. And yet it says here that people just don't seem to care. I'm going to talk about one guy and then I'm going to turn the attention to us because I think we can be a bit like this. Uh, There's this guy in the Old Testament known as Pharaoh. And I've said that the uh, trumpets align pretty well with the, uh, the plagues uh, that took place in Israel. And I think Pharaoh is a, huh, he is a picture of what these people in this story that we're looking at today do. I mean, Pharaoh has this control over the Israelite people. He is in, uh, they are enslaved under his power. And Moses, uh, be, being the voice of God, comes to Pharaoh and says, Hey, God wants you to know that you need to let his people go. And, and he's like, no. And, and then there's a plague, and bad. And, and he says, okay, and there's plague. And he just keeps saying no and yes and no and yes and no and yes. He refuses to do what God wants him to do despite the water turning to blood and the frogs and the lice and the flies and the livestock pestilence and the boils and the hail and the locusts and the darkness and the killing of firstborn children. He still, he still refuses to listen to God, and it is so easy for us to look at Pharaoh and to look at this story in the book of Revelation and to say, I can't believe that those people wouldn't repent. But the reality is, we can be just like that. First, William Hendrickson says, the general meaning of these trumpets is clear throughout the entire period, extending from the first, second coming, our exalted Lord will again and again punish the persecutors of the church by inflicting upon them disasters in every sphere of life. That's scary. But Jim McGuigan says, there's nothing so scary as one soaked in sin and rebellion that he can't quit rebelling. Nothing so fearful as to see men who have been blinded by God still seeking the door to commit iniquity, as did the people of Sodom. It isn't just wars, right? Like there's tons of consequences to our sin all around us and yet people refuse to repent. And I believe that God inspired this passage of scripture, uh, Revelation 9, 13 through 21, to call us to just think about how ridiculous it is to see all the bad that goes on in the world, whether God is levying punishment or we're seeing natural consequences of evil. 
and to look at it all and just keep embracing our sin. There's tons of application here for, for people who aren't Christians. I mean, let me tell you the story that we believe. We believe that we are sinners, every one of us, and Jesus came to earth to die for our sins. He is the Son of God who came to earth to die for our sins. He was nailed to a cross, and there on that cross, he paid all of the punishment that we deserve, all of it, all of the hellish punishment, all of the hell that we deserve. He died, he rose again, he conquered sin and death in doing that, and all we have to do to be forgiven from our sins, all these things that we regret, that hurt us to think about, that... Um, pain us to tell other people we can be forgiven for from all of that simply by repenting and, and by repent let me remind you that i mean turning from a life that is driven by self and sin and turning to jesus and saying i believe that you are the savior of my soul and i commit to living for you and through you for the rest of my life when you think about wars like we've already prayed about today that go around all over the world, when you think about so many of the ailments that, that, that just tear apart our country, whether it be school shootings or massive division at the political level and all of the homeless people all around us, we can't walk around going, God did this, God did this, God did this, but we should walk around recognizing that God can punish in ways that are far beyond the terrible things that we see and it should compel you who are not a Christian to stop and say, is there a way out? And when you ask that question, I hope you remember that there is an answer, and the answer is yes, it is Jesus. Jesus is the only way out of the hellish experiences that we see on earth and might experience in eternity if we don't repent. But for those of us that are Christians, I think all of those same warnings compel us to stop our sins, and yet we are so so stubborn in holding on to them and being slow to repent even of the small things. We cling to our own sin while being mad that others won't repent of theirs. In fact, we often refuse to call sin, sin these days. I mean, let me be clear. We probably don't worship demons, but I do think we have our own idols of silver and bronze and stone and wood. I mean, we worship money and clothes and cars and houses. We could say that we worship the idols of wealth and possession and status and appearance. And we look at all these terrible things going on around us, and here's Revelation saying, hey, this is a warning of you know, how evil is dealt with by God. And yet we refuse to even you know, lay down some money for the good of God's kingdom or not make it all about how we look to the world or refuse to talk to people about Jesus when we have the opportunity because they might be a little put off. I mean, we can look at non-Christians and say, how dare you not come into salvation? But how dare we not give up on our sins when we see what evil really leads to in the world? Now, I'm not saying we're going to be perfect. I'm, I, and when I say we, I hope you understand that I mean we. <laughs> I mean like me and you both. I'm not pointing fingers here. I do it too. It can take me years to realize that, oh, I probably shouldn't be doing that. But we should be people running away from sin. 
I mean, nobody in our midst is probably a murderer or practitioner of the black arts or thieves. But the American church is full of people who embrace sexual immorality. In fact, more and more, the American church wants to pretend that there's no such thing as sexual immorality. We embrace more and more things like premarital sex and pornography and homosexuality and divorce and remarriage and crude joking, and they're all made out to be okay. But Revelation reminds us that evil is bad and God punishes it, and I'm not saying he's going to punish us for eternity, don't get me wrong, but it should serve as a reminder to us that we should be repenting, you know, we should be trying to live for Jesus and not pretending that everything and anything is okay. We have been saved from the things that lead to these hellish experiences. How dare we embrace them once we have been saved? Non-Christian out there, become one. But us who are Christians, we who are Christians, we should be living, as I said at the very beginning, lives of repentance. It should be our hope to be holy. Because God does demonstrate his mercy to us. He did it in the death of Jesus, but he also does it in relenting and punishing us. I mean, think about it as Christians. We know how great it is to be forgiven for our sins, to be embraced in the family of God, to know that God loves us and listens to our prayers. And so how dare we just live a life where we're just like, I'll kind of dabble in these things that God has saved me from. We should be living lives where we try to be holy and set apart for Jesus who has saved us from the hellish experiences that we could have otherwise had. I know it's all kind of (laughs) heavy, dark, it's snowing, and I'm up here preaching this heavy uh, sermon, but I think it's so important. And I don't want to leave you with just feeling like, you know, we don't repent enough or whatever it might be. I want to leave you just with this, maybe because it's Christmas. Um, that God has offered you mercy. He's offered you mercy. And he's offered you grace and he's offered you love. And this should compel you to come to him and embrace him as your savior. But if you've already done that, it should compel you to live for him because you know how hellish the other side is. All of us, no matter whether we are Christians or not Christians, should look at the disasters of the world and we should let them be an opportunity to turn from our sin and embrace the other side of that coin, which is the mercy and grace of God who forgives us and loves us and cares about us and takes care of us despite the things that we do wrong, the things that we do that are sin. Let me pray that we'll do that. Lord Jesus, I hope that you uh, don't, you know, let people just go home and feel like woe is me. But, um, but instead, God, I pray that people would walk out really excited to remove sin from their life and, 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 and um, take hold of your mercy. And Lord, for non-Christians, that means like embracing you as their savior. And I pray, Lord, I pray that you would do that like in them, that you would call them in a new way, Lord, that you would whisper in their ear or blast a trumpet in their ear so that they may come to you, God. But for those of us that are Christians, just keep reminding us of your offer of mercy and draw, draw us back, God, to those first moments of our, of our salvation experience where we're like, I just want to do nothing but live for Jesus. Like nothing else matters. And I pray, God, that we would be less and less prone 
to, to go off of the path and, and we would be quick, God, to return to it, to live for you uh, with our entire lives because we've experienced your mercy. But God, as I pray that, as we sin, Lord, I pray that yes, we would be convicted and yes, we would see this is a great warning to return to you and do your will in every area of our life. But we would also see the incredible hope that I even think this dark passage demonstrates that you, God, just keep calling us to embrace your mercy and leave sin behind. You just keep calling us to holiness and purity and fruit and goodness and godliness and I thank you for that and I pray that we wouldn't just say I got to leave sin but we would keep moving towards you and your mercy every day in our lives and I pray these things in Jesus name amen